Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 61. Isidra speaks quietly, which is also its own splendor. It's not that our oaths mean nothing to us except the threat of Abaddon. Keltham, we do. Understand why they are things that lawful people swear. By doth Ilani standards, none of us understand properly, because we cannot give the lectures you give and play the games you play, but we do feel what an oath means, even if we cannot say it. Sorry. I... Don't suppose that it would help if I observed that one very normal way of solving this problem would be for you to hurt Carissa to her actual breaking point, so that you would subsequently know where that is, and that you are completely incapable of this right now, and that this indicates that you don't have an urgent problem here. You've never tried to hurt her in any serious way. How do you know she's this easy to break? I guess I am— in some sense, offended on behalf of Carissa's chelish dignity. She uses the baseline loanword that Keltham used before. I don't suppose, though, that appealing to her dignity is much of an argument to you either. Is there anything a lawful doth Elani would say about just trying to do a thing, to see what happens, when it won't be a disaster for it to fail? We've pretty much got a proverb in nearly those exact words, yeah. He utters it in baseline, an eight-syllable couplet, which rhymes and scans because baseline was designed in part to make that proverb be a rhyming couplet. To Sevar. Sevar, watch yourself. It's lovely that you're mastering the law, but Isidra isn't supposed to be its master. And I'm sorry if I'm wasting your time by being obstinate to a point I should have gotten, but hurting Carissa to her breaking point sounds like it just is the failure and the disaster. That's because you don't understand the meaning of anything you're doing. More passion in Isidra's voice now, and a hint of Isidra's real power in her voice. Isidra's, that is, not Abigail's. Someone like Carissa desires to be hurt to her breaking point so that she can be broken and reforged and made what you want her to be, heated in fire and tempered, beaten and sharpened. You're not ready to do any of that. You don't know how to bring her to that point, and you don't know what to do with her once she's there but have the courtesy to her to not pretend that you tickle in her too hard, or whatever it is you do with her in bed now, is going to shatter her beyond repair. I'm... I'm sorry, Keltham. Bad memories. I shouldn't have said that to you. You weren't the one I was really talking to. He's a little confused by the concept of a very serious person who, like, can't figure that out before she starts talking. And then she wonders why he's worried that Carissa's self-reporting is going to be bad. It's because you all have a nine-year-old's skill at self-reporting, at best. And that seems like not enough for like, Hey, how are you currently doing at being broken and remade? Oh, wait. Can't ask you that. It's all supposed to be illegible. Cool. His mind is evading by generating unspoken snark because he doesn't want to come to grips with Isidra's actual point that is being made with real force and emotion behind it. And hey, Keltham knows that. But if he didn't, He'd be all like, oh, I am currently thinking about this scorching burn against your argument, and his self-reports would all be useless. Actually, did Isidra fake that slip, so she'd have a chance to let the more emotional words through? 
That would be like discussion over in Dathilan if you got caught doing it, but maybe it's not metaphorically illegal in Galerion. Well, either people with intelligence headbands still slip like that, or she doesn't know. Keltham knows that somebody with high intelligence shouldn't do that. Well, somebody with high thinkumph shouldn't do that. Her actual thinkumph is not whatever Detect Intelligence says, and they don't know the difference. They presumably think that high intelligence is as smart as the very smart people get. Okay, maybe the slip was real. Also, he's not here to arrest Isidre, metaphorically or otherwise. He's here to consider if she's got a point. What? What's blank that's different from... Better than... Intelligence? Abigail transmits this all to Sevar, along with a note that Abigail isn't going to try being emotional at Keltham again unless so advised. If Sever has professionally insubordinate thoughts about Abigail's mistake, she can be tortured in the temple. If she has flirtatiously insubordinate thoughts, it can go to the personal cue. Sevar is a reasonably quick learner, and the thing she has learned is to not try having opinions about Abigail's decisions, which, for all she knows, may have been the best available at the time. She's better at self-deception than most people. It's pretty obvious by now. Her self-deceptions go deeper, grow more roots. She didn't just learn to quash the thought, Abigail makes mistakes. She uprooted everything nearby, replaced with, you are too ignorant of the constraints on Abigail to ever evaluate anything she does as a mistake. Carissa has only tried being emotional at Keltham once, and what happened was that he decided he needed to invent contraception about her sadness, it was very confusing. Isidre should be glad he's not handling Isidre's emotions like that. Maybe Dathilan encourages that because they don't want their people emotionally manipulable and also don't want them to learn to simply not care about other people. Does anything bad happen if I talk about all this sort of thing with Carissa directly? Passing it to you, Savar. This is controlling your side of this game. Isidre looks thoughtful and eats one of the small, delightful snacks present by way of consideration— it's not generally advised to tell your submissives that you're having trouble regarding them as adults enough to make decisions, but the likely consequence is she'll think a little worse of you, not she'll walk out. Also, if Keltham is feeling meaningfully constrained by fear. Carissa will walk out, well, that's precisely why some people like to put that decision, too, in his hands— so that he can use reasoning processes that aren't meant for situations where the other person might get fed up and walk away. Ah, uh, that came out too influenced by Dathilan. Translate before you say it. It's not... generally advised to tell a submissive like Sevar that you're having trouble regarding her as enough of an adult to make decisions. But I expect the consequence is that she'll probably be upset and definitely turned off, and in the worst case, she will think a little worse of you. I don't think she'll walk out. If you're afraid of that possibility, I would point out that she would very much like to have that option be removed from herself, and never again have to fear that you'll be afraid of her walking out and not say things to her. She wants you to be able to think about her, the way you'd think if you weren't ever afraid she'd leave you. I will admit, a lot of times my reaction to what you're saying is that it has, like, one benefit, but one would sort of expect a whole lot of other problems that came packaged with that one benefit. I met a vote to suspend this discussion branch and move back up the discussion tree. I have a sense that this line of questioning is not likely to resolve much further with small amounts of further discussion. 
My general takeaway is that you don't think it would be catastrophic for me to ask Carissa some hopefully careful questions, so I will probably do that and get back to you on whether I'm still requesting a queen meeting. Assuming point three, which is, uh, kind of complicated, resolves well. Or at all. Keltham's thoughts show that he's politely waiting for Isidre to indicate whether she's okay with tabling this topic here. That is probably wise. So your point one is that you need to meet the queen. Your point two is that you need not only for Carissa to be okay, which she almost certainly will be, but you need to know that somehow, despite knowing so little, and you think that the thing for you to do is to talk to Carissa about it. Your point three is... Feeling safe myself about renting Carissa to the queen. Safe in what sense? Ah, you're worried that the queen is better at looking like she has absolute power and that Carissa will start to like her more than she likes you. But you see, Keltham, the queen would turn me into a statue forever if it happened to be convenient, as Modius would too. Not that she's sure she's supposed to admit that to herself. And I am weak and human and bask in the gentleness of someone who'd have to be incredibly sorely provoked to destroy me eternally. Abigail would not in fact do that to Sivar unless incredibly sorely provoked, Abigail does not say to Sever at this time, both for personal reasons of future plans, and also because Abigail has already fucking said so, and Sever didn't listen because she was too caught up in her fear fantasy. So, as near as I can tell, the three obvious pathways by which Carissa could end up being taken from me are one, that the queen is going to be a vastly better sadist, two, that Carissa has a sex problem, which I'm not going to go into if it's not already in her file, but the queen is going to have vastly more expensive sex toys, three, that the queen is the other person who could plausibly have absolute power over Carissa. My Carissa model says that it is basically not possible to steal Carissa from me by pathway two, that there's no realistic amount of pleasure you can get from sex toys and without dangerous drugs that you can use to steal a Carissa from a Keltham. I nonetheless check explicitly that you agree with my Carissamodel there. Being much better at hurting her than I am, and maybe looking like the queen has more real power over her than I do, both seem like actual problems. These problems could plausibly be solved by mature, reasonable adults with five minutes of negotiations. They are much bigger problems if what we're fighting is a trope that requires the queen to try to steal Carissa from me, no matter how little sense that makes, and make concerning progress on it before the queen gets revealed as a traitor or the matter gets resolved with an amicable harem expansion. Wait. If the fundamental reason why Carissa prefers Keltham is that Keltham will never statue her, and then Abigail kidnaps Carissa for purposes of slow yet ultimately fake petrification, and afterwards swears never to do that to her, barring deliberate betrayal, etc. Could Sever actually start falling in love with the Queen and start to lose attraction for Keltham? Is that actually a thing they need to worry about here? Is the part where Abigail then ends up losing her throne or pregnant with Keltham's child also something she needs to worry about in that case? This thought hasn't occurred to Carissa, who is missing some important information on Abigail's future plans, and she's mostly thinking about how Keltham's very cute, and she should go into her punishment tonight aiming to work out that flaw even though it wasn't prominent among the ones listed. Savar, he's talking about tropes again. Stop admiring how fucking pathetic you are and help me out here. Isidra picks up another snack and consumes it, looking thoughtful, 
and maybe a bit confused and worried. I do agree that pleasuring Sevar is a most unlikely way for someone like the Queen to successfully steal someone like Sevar from someone like you, she says truthfully. Anyone you can do that to is not strong enough to be worth doing it to. She's not admiring how pathetic she is. She's developing a plan of attack to get it solved tonight. That hypothesis makes this more valuable to you as a test of his tropes theory, though you understand why he wouldn't see it that way. You have lots of observations about how incredibly implausible it'd be for the Queen to steal Carissa, but you aren't sure how they hold up in trope world. In the actual, logical world, though, incredibly unlikely. Also, though he has good reason to put this line of thought on hold, the Queen would absolutely respect a pre-existing arrangement, even if things are running on tropes. She couldn't be the Queen of Cheliax if she broke a pre-existing agreement between Keltham and Cheliax over Carissa, such as that she is his. Eight hurrahs, then, for predictive modeling, which has that form of pseudo-success, which is advanced prediction of someone else's more expert prediction, Keltham says. Unfortunately, in Taldane, where it sounds less than entirely snappy. Abigail is no longer entirely sure she's safe to say that it's incredibly implausible, because Abigail is no longer quite certain it's true. Keltham is right, in a way. There's a sense in which Abigail can give Sever more powerful experiences, right now, than Keltham can give her. Abigail was planning the most powerful experience that would still let Sever recover to health afterwards, well into the break-and-remake zone of torture. Things like that have been known to ever affect a submissive's feelings. But if that's all a trope, is she able to just... Suppose that tropes do have power here, and we try to just not test it at all, walk away, Isidra says cautiously. Does the trope fight back? Punish us for trying to defy it? I realize you're going to say no, but I'm wondering what the answer is instead. We don't get to decide that there isn't going to be this huge complication. Only the queen can decide not to pursue Sivar. And if a trope is manifesting in her then that's not something she will decide to do. It's not that she can't decide it, but that she won't. It's not that she can't, but that she won't. Is, unfortunately, exactly the wrong literal phrasing to use. If you were hoping to not remind Abigail Thrun that she is now the queen of Cheliax, her mother is safely dead. The tutoress who said those things to her and backed them up with a whip was turned into a statue. Eventually. And that, the point of being Abigail Thrun is that literally nobody gets to tell you what to do. She has a junior partnership with her senior partner, Asmodeus, and keeps to her side of that bargain. And that's it. But is it actually any more proof of her freedom, if she lets a trope manifest through her instead? Though, according to Sevar, it's more that Keltham just happened to land in a universe where the queen will do what the trope wants. And now, at this point, Abigail is genuinely confused about who and what she's supposed to say fuck you to. But to be clear, Isidra says cautiously, if the queen chooses of her own will not to cause a complication, then the result is that we've proven tropes don't govern here. That's the only result, correct? It's not that our head of government blinks out of existence or is subjected to a godlike level of mind control. Right. But the problem there is that this scenario doesn't look like the Queen entering into grown-up negotiations for how to rent Carissa, and that happening safely and with no complications. 
It looks like there not being any particular need to rent Carissa to the Queen in the first place, because the Queen is just busy running her region, like a sane person. You are not fucking helping me make this decision, little boy. I think that sane people occasionally take time off from running their country to sleep with people they are actually attracted to, Isidri says. Intuitions only partly magical tell Abigail that Isidra needs to make this statement incredibly blatantly sharp for a chelish person, so that it will come across as slightly sharp to Keltham. Abigail sends a side note to Sever about how the very blatant sharpness is deliberate, and why it's there. Sevar may need to note for her own future that Keltham may need very loud signals for them to be perceptible to him at all. That's going to take some practice to calibrate right. Are Sever's thoughts by any chance flirtatious right now? In the sense that Sever is thinking things she knows will get her punished. Savar cooperatively, thinks that this is hilarious and Abigail deserves every word of the takedown Keltham has no idea he is delivering. She is really, really, really not looking forward to the conversation that's going to happen after Aspexia, Lirilatha, and Gorthoclek all get a hold of all these transcripts. Maybe she can take out her frustrations on Savar afterwards. I agree in one sense, and I'm sorry that the Queen doesn't more often find people she's attracted to and doesn't have a wider field of choice. But there's being evil, and then there's being stupid, you know, and messing around with the very important alien's girlfriend is definitely the latter thing, if you're not being shoved around by tropes. Actually, even if she is being selected into existence by tropes from my standpoint, she's still being unrealistically stupid. From her own internal standpoint, presumably there's some story she'd tell herself, but I don't know what it would be exactly. You really are not helping your case, little boy. And there is no hope in you for the case where Abigail rents Carissa. Under terms agreeable to you, they both have a fine time. Abigail doesn't go insane from overwork. Carissa respects you more for having done a usual dominant thing. And also gets to let out some steam in a way that you'll probably learn quickly at 18 intelligence, but aren't ready to do to her today. None of this holds any hope for you at all? Let me put it this way. I would be much more hopeful about it in a world where Pilar didn't go to Elysium, Ione didn't deliver prophecies, and if Asmodia comes back from the dead with superpowers, I would just call the entire thing off. I do have enough pull myself to call in a resurrection on Asmodia shortly, and whoever does it can check whether or not she has... superpowers? An earlier attempt at Ray's dead on Asmodia failed. The fool couldn't manage to die by her own hand before Nadal's shadows turned her into an undead shadow herself, which requires resurrection and a more expensive diamond. Which, however, Cheliax now has. I'm not actually confident I can call tropes that finely, though I suppose, now that I've said it out loud, it's more likely to happen. Not a bad test. I'd just as soon do it now if it needs doing anyways. Unless Asmodia is otherwise enjoying hell a lot and will be irate about being called back before the project has actually restarted. I should have thought of that earlier, actually. Hopefully, though it varies by the person. And in any case, I'm sure Asmodia will agree that the test you've proposed is good reason to call her back from hell to Cheliax a little early. Abigail is really sure about this, in fact. Really, really sure. Bet her kingdom on it, sure. Abigail is mistaken, but this is genuinely not her fault, here. Make it so, then. It shall be done. Isidri says graciously, though as a paracountess of Cheliax, even slightly too good Cheliax, she is a little put out with Keltham giving her orders like that. And if we find that nothing unusual has happened to Asmodia, 
What does a rental agreement to the Queen of Cheliax look like? Look, I'm not sure that Asmodia failing to return with superpowers is enough of a test here. It is not predicted that strongly by tropes. It was halfway a joke before we started talking about it, which, yes, makes the trope level stronger, but not that much stronger. The Queen is a much stronger trope, and a much stronger test than that. But to answer your question, the thing I'd want to see before I rented Carissa to the Queen of Cheliax was... Sufficient cause to believe that, if I had to fight with the Queen over Carissa's love and sexuality and possession, I'd win. Like, not because a trope said so, I don't think I can rely on that. I mean win inside a normal Galarian universe. Affection is weakness, and Carissa does not want to be weak. Affection is weakness, and Carissa does not want to be weak. Affection is weakness, and Carissa does not want to be weak. Shit, she's supposed to be coming up with things for Azidre to say. I think if you lose Carissa, it won't be because the Queen stole her heart with her superior ruthlessness and sadism. It'll be because you shy away from using your own. A girl can be happy with a wide range of masters, but not with one who isn't evil. Not with one who isn't interested in discovering what's in his heart, however dark it is. And I think you're at risk of that problem even if you tell the queen to go on her merry way. I think, Isidra says seriously, if you lose Carissa, it won't be because the queen stole her heart with more ruthless sadism. It'll be because you shied away from using your own. A girl can be happy with a wide range of masters, but not with one who isn't evil, not with one who isn't interested in discovering what's in his heart however dark it is. After hearing some of what you said earlier, I do now worry you're more at risk of that problem even if the Queen's advisors talk her out of the whole thing. Thought your earlier advice was not do anything I didn't want to. I'm more worried now that you'll want to, and not do it anyways. You were raised by a society that denies everything you are. Though, may I also remind you that there's other women besides Carissa, if it truly proves that she wants more from you than you want to give her. That denies everything you are, Stings. The sort of sting where it's got more than just one grain of truth in it, even if the statement is obviously literally false. Keltham does have any social-emotional dignity, of course, so he's not going to hold it against Isidra that she pointed it out. And he also has any epistemic dignity, so he's not going to automatically believe the whole thing and all its implications and connotations, just because it stings. Anyways, Keltham says, the obvious thought for how I could prevent the Queen from winning Carissa's heart through sadism is to write contract limitations on how much she can do to her there. Keltham, you are a very sweet and innocent lad who grew up in an incredibly lawful good society with nothing resembling a world wound, and this is, in our case, something of a problem. Anything that the Queen would find satisfying— and that would appease for a time the deeper and darker needs buried far inside Carissa that you are not ready for, is something you are not ready to see written down as contract language. I would be very happy to write out language that I was confident would mean the Queen had not gone further than I would want her to go, but I would not want you to see that language. If that works for you, we have a solution. If you write down only permitted things that don't make a Dathalani worry— then the two of them might as well not have sex. This is not really helping me feel like I can satisfy Carissa in the cuddle room. Even when you are ready to do such things to Carissa, she will not need them done to her very often. Your usual activities in the bedroom will not be like that. 
and for you to deliver her with a smile into the gentle hands of the Queen of Cheliacs would be cruelty in its own way, and to your credit in her eyes. I would much advise kissing her when you inform her of it. Carissa would not dream of presuming that Her Majesty is letting her own desire to torture Carissa get in the way of achieving their strategic objectives from this conversation, but reminds Her Majesty, just in case that Her Majesty can have Carissa without persuading Keltham of it, since, you know, they're lying to him about everything. The new game Abigail Thrun is now playing here looks a bit more like do not actually end up attracting Sevar too much and subsequently end up married to Keltham. Isidra wasn't lying about the rental arrangement contributing to that not happening. Not sent to Sever, of course. All right. I'm not quite sure how I feel about that, but I'm willing to entertain the idea. You, who does not actually want any complications here, write a rental contract whose terms you're confident prevents the queen from breaking Carissa or winning her affection away from me by being too much of a better sadist, even if I can't read that part until possibly much later. That handles sadism. I think my brain is willing to believe that Carissa having an orgasm I can't give her yet is not actually a problem for our relationship. This leaves the problem of how to not have Carissa be attracted to somebody who maybe looks even more than me, like somebody who could take absolute power over her. It leaves the question of whether I can win if the Queen tries to fight me over who owns Carissa, which is itself very much a trope. I have my own idea, but I'd be interested in hearing what, if anything, you would think of as the most obvious solution. No, not just going ahead and demanding legal ownership of Carissa from Cheliacs, the second most obvious solution. If Abigail doesn't just lie here, and she has now seen some of the consequences of lying to Keltham and having to live in the entire world you inadvertently created and shaped inside his head, then Abigail has to admit, she is not immediately seeing it. Abigail Thrun wanting Carissa and Keltham wanting Abigail Thrun to not have Carissa is not very likely to end, realistically speaking, with Abigail Thrun sadly bereft of Carissa. What is he actually thinking, though? Come on, Keltham, think of it. Isidre thoughtfully consumes a snack. Why aren't you thinking? There it is. Have the Queen sign a contract saying that she relinquishes all her potential ownership rights in Carissa Sivar, under all possible future circumstances where she and Keltham dispute Seaver's ownership, to Keltham? Doesn't exactly cover the case where the Queen is abusing governance powers to keep control of Carissa. Look, the basic idea here is, you can't actually have two people with de facto absolute power over the same person. Either it's true that I could get Carissa and have anything I want from her, and nobody who tried could take her away. Or, alternatively... It's true that the queen could get Carissa and take everything she wants from her. Or neither of these things can be true, but they can't both be true simultaneously. If the basic premise of Carissa's sexuality is that she is and should be with the person who'd succeed in controlling her, then if the queen could successfully take her away from me, Carissa is in a sense with me under false premises. So the question then becomes, what is the truth here? What is Savar thinking about this? She has effortfully fenced away the part of her that thinks this is just really funny. It is, but this is not the time to think so, and possibly she is not the person to think so. Her sincere, honest answer is that Keltham is more, 
something, the phrase she immediately thought of, is terrifyingly creative, but she's 100% sure she will regret with great intensity having questioned the Queen of Cheliax's terrifying creativity. More, Dath Ilani? The space of solutions he draws from is larger, and once he gets competent, he'll be able to use the Galarian pool too. He clearly thought he had a way of doing safe wishes that might work, and she can't even tell him he's obviously wrong. Anyway, he's more something than the Queen of Cheliax, and the Queen of Cheliax would beat him without trying in a ruthlessness contest or a solving your problems with any of murder, petrification, and mind control contest. But Asmodeus has committed to letting Keltham leave Cheliax alive and in one piece, and given that she thinks Keltham would win this contest if both of them were trying. And also, it's obviously not in Cheliax's interests to let it come to that, though it's maybe in Cheliax's interests to make Keltham realize that he does, actually, want to be the person who would have absolute power over Carissa, even if he doesn't quite yet want to exercise it. Saver thinks Abigail fucking Thrun would lose to is a trope trying to provoke her here. Are you suggesting some sort of duel? Isidre ventures cautiously. This sounds like essentially the opposite of what we want here. And I am, to be honest, a little concerned about your ability to take Abigail Thrun in a direct contest of wills and powers. Wait, why did Isidre say that? Damn it, Abigail, get a hold of yourself. You have goals in this conversation. Well, at least she's not straight up lying to him about that. That's an encouraging sign. I haven't the tiniest intention of fighting fair, Isidri, not against the chief executive of Cheliax. The more impossible a problem is without cheating, the more it means you're supposed to cheat. She's more of a good person than I am, by the sound of things, or Carissa thought she might not be that good. But her advisors certainly sound good-leaning. All the good of Cheliax requires that you have no fun, and that. The Church of Asmodeus yoinks her political capital, if she actually tries to take Savar. I can say I'll walk out on Cheliax if I lose Savar to her, and mean that, because I'm less good than she is, and have fewer existing bargains I'm constrained by. I'd expect Carissa's sexuality to accept that coin, if it's a reasonable and logical sort of sexuality. The question of who is more willing to use their power is very much the determinant of who actually would end up with absolute power over her. Who it is that, if they so chose, Carissa could not escape from. Tell him if he'll walk out over me, then he does win. And that, caring that much about me, is indeed something the queen can't compete with, and the key to Carissa's sexuality, or as close to it as a person who still runs into a wall of good every time he tries to have desires, can comprehend it. Abigail Thrun has not felt quite this irritated in some time. She is a good Asmodean. Her compact requires it of her, yes. But that's not why she does it. And so she has her pride. In a room near to this one, Silently and unremarkedly, precious things burn. When you're at the eighth circle of sorcery, you can do little things like that without bothering about the spells. Well, it's clear enough that Sever thinks that Keltham has already won this contest and with it her heart. So the question then becomes, does Abigail Thrun choose to permit Savar to go on believing that and to convince Keltham of it too? Being willing to go to lengths great enough to take possession of her 
is the key to Carissa's sexuality indeed, Isidre says. No hint of coldness shows in her. Abigail's splendor is about her, and she is no undisciplined child like these two. Or as close to it as can be understood for now, by a person who still runs into a wall of good every time he tries to have desires about matters like that. I think I have some idea of what you're planning now. I'd still want to hear it spelled out. That Carissa's sexuality depends on the truth of two propositions that can't both simultaneously be true is itself very much a trope, and one of the deepest and most powerful ones. Even more than the Queen of Cheliacs being a complication, even more than her coming into conflict with me, the deepest trope here has to be the question of fact, what is really true. Everything else fell into place once I realized that. My proposal is as simple as it is unfair to the Queen. If I meet her and know her, and think she's worthy of Carissa at all, I offer to negotiate the rental agreement for Carissa, in front of her advisors, and with Carissa there to see it, because she's the one who has to know this truth and witness it. I say plainly, Adath Alani does not bother to add and truthfully if they're bothering to let words leave their mouth at all, that I'm worried about a more experienced sadist stealing Carissa from me, and if the Queen of Cheliacs does that successfully, I will walk out on Cheliacs and go make a revolution somewhere else. I say that I want guarantees about my right, signed by the government of Cheliacs, and by the Queen, and by the Church of Asmodeus, in whatever capacity Asmodeus recognizes such things, to take Carissa with me if that happens, potentially including against her own will, if I so choose, to somewhere that puts enough value on a Dath Ilani to also recognize my possession of her. Having that right doesn't mean I'd actually exercise it, obviously, but nobody needs to say that in front of the Queen. And while Carissa might know what I wouldn't really do, I think she'll also understand the romantic gesture in the spirit in which it was intended. If everybody's being sane, the Queen and her advisors are like, Sure, sounds weirdly extreme, but he's obviously doing it to impress his girlfriend. They sign on like the totally sane grown-ups they are. The limits on the Queen's sadism are in a sealed section of the compact that I trust you to write. The conflict and the trope have been diffused, easily enough to call into severe question whether there was ever really any trope at work in the first place. If the Queen is like, why no, how could I possibly do that? I have strange reasons I cannot do that. Then we know she's a giant trope avatar, and there's a foretold path of conflict and complication whose core question of truth is who Carissa Savar really belongs to, both de facto and in terms of her core sexuality, because those two are the same thing. In which case, obviously, I stop negotiating that rental agreement, get back to my new research installation, and both we and the Queen's advisors do everything we can to keep the Queen and Carissa apart for as long as possible. We do everything we can to, like, totally slow down all of that from actually happening, if that is at all possible, and try to delay everything into the future as far as possible, because, like, I already have a job. Eventually, either the Queen loses power, or the two of us reconcile and kiss, or, if I screw up along the way, the queen wins, and Cheliac stays poor for longer. Or, Galarian ends up falling to the world wound because there wasn't really anywhere else that could offer the resources that Cheliacs and Asmodeus could. I suppose there's other possibilities within the tropes that would then almost have to be governing, 
but I'd have to think hard about what they were. They'd be less probable. It seems possible that Carissa having feelings for Keltham is actually relevant as a qualification to pull this off. Because Carissa, unlike literally every other person in this operation, doesn't underestimate him. She doesn't know which specific thoughts in the last little bit have merited punishment, but she has this feeling it's not going to be half an hour, one way or another. Doesn't matter. Hell is forever, and she can endure that, too. All right. Abigail thinks she is going to have to proceed under the assumption that the tropes are real and govern here. Her reasoning is not complicated. Why, Sever herself might see it if Sever had the requisite plus six headband of all mental attributes. Keltham thinks he's describing a future event that he has to arrange in accordance with tropes. That event has already happened, without Keltham knowing it. He has been fighting the true queen this entire time, in front of Carissa, and apparently to Carissa for now, won. In Dathilan's rhythm of prediction, success, credibility, that is a victory he has won. Abigail has worked out by now a wordless sort of apprehension as to what sort of things tropes are, namely things out of stories, except that they're not the tropes of Cheliax or Galarion. They're the tropes of Dathilan. But if Dathilan has, per transcript, girls who dream of becoming dark unilateral rulers, then Dathilan surely also has a trope for appearing to have won when you haven't because the person you're fighting is smarter than you, and you never knew how many of your plans were known to her from the beginning. More the fool Keltham, if that thought hasn't occurred to him, and more the fool Carissa, if, knowing the true place of the Queen of Cheliax in all of this, it hasn't occurred to her to wonder the same. Or she could just not decide to do any of that, and then her life wouldn't be a trope. Possibly then there wouldn't be any tropes around at all, she's not sure how that works. Ice and fire alternate, in an unoccupied room nearby. Cycling between the two prevents the floors and walls from melting. It's not Abigail's first time venting emotion where her adversaries will not see that and be warned. In the end, the logic behind Abigail's last decision here is simple. She doesn't actually want to spend the rest of her life like this. She'd rather not be a trope. In fact, she now deeply desires that there be no tropes anywhere near Cheliax ever. And while she's not quite sure that this is how any of this works, she's going to do her part there. Well then, Isidre says, and sighs. I suppose you should go back and talk to Carissa, and determine how she feels about being rented to the Queen, and I should see if you can meet the Queen at least briefly, and then maybe move directly to the confrontation with her and her advisors inside of Carissa, then or very soon after. If everyone is sane, which I do expect them to be, Keltham, it should actually get done quite quickly, or I certainly hope so because these are all very busy people. But time today is no more time than time tomorrow, and if possible we may as well get this done while we can do it without burning teleports. You know, now that I'm thinking about actually doing this, I'm worried I may be about to make my life way more complicated than it actually needed to be. Asmodeus himself is literally the only being who could possibly have ordained that Keltham not be a pile of ash in this moment. Keltham, I'm sorry, but my time really is up now, Isidris says. I do think I'd recommend going ahead with this course of action, over leaving things as they are, because I do still believe, in the end, that sanity will triumph. 
I have no time to do more planning than this. With you, not now, I fear. Talk to Carissa and let me know whether to move forward on meeting and then confronting the Queen. All right, sorry for having taken this much of your time. I'll let you know my decision. Isidre nods to him, still very graciously, and rises to go. Can she get away with having Lirilatha and Gorthoklek done by illusion? No, damn her to Abaddon, because Keltham knows that Lirilatha is one of her advisors, and may try to talk to Lirilatha, and without the actual Lirilatha, no illusionist is going to successfully fake whatever law Keltham finds recognizable in lawful evil outsiders. Lorilatha is absolutely going to tell Rugaton and Gorthaklek to actually show up for this. This isn't going to be fun. At least, not for her. And one way or another, in due time, she will have her fun. Just as soon as she can figure out how to do it without that being a trope. Carissa is waiting in the next room, kneeling. It seems wisest. She wonders if she is supposed to declare herself security screened and go back to Keltham or do her punishment first. She has no other opinions at all. If you were only reading her thoughts now, it wouldn't be obvious she's previously had any other opinions. Enough of this self-willed stupidity, Abigail says, not bothering to leash her temper from her words backed by full splendor. You are performing important work of Asmodeus that I, personally, delegated to you. Thoughts are required of you to accomplish your function, slave of Asmodeus. You will now start having thoughts, or I will hurt you until you do. Fine. You'll hurt me either way. I'll hurt you more if you don't obey. That's always been the way of hell. Do you know who else in Cheliax, besides Keltham, does not think only what he thinks other people around him want him to think? Me. You want your lawful evil Dathalanism? That much of it stands before you. Enough of your lies to yourself, to your thoughts. You have taken things far past the point where even you can pretend to yourself that nothing is wrong, and I will not permit you to pretend to yourself to be nothing. Do you love Keltham? What? I was reading your mind, what little of it you permitted to exist. He won the contest for you against the Queen of Cheliax. He earned himself the key to your soul. I saw your triumph when he did. You will not be made a statue for your answer one way or another, but the crown now orders you to answer and in truth. What are you to Keltham now? Are you his mistress, his slave? Has he stepped before Asmodeus in your heart and become your god? No, she says, because that much at least is clear. Uh, to the last one? He doesn't have my soul. He doesn't have real power over me that isn't the game we all play with this first life. Asmodeus owns me. Asmodeus has always owned me. Keltham would have to rule hell to be my god, or take me somewhere else, and you know perfectly well I don't belong somewhere else, and they wouldn't let me in. Truth, if Sevar's thoughts to herself are not complete lies. You love Keltham, and if you don't like it put that way, feel free to say what he is to you instead. Will you, then, obediently continue lying to him, working against his best interests, and tempting him from Axis into hell? Yes, because human emotions are a terrible guide to decision-making, and being unfortunate enough to occasionally suffer them does not make me beholden to them. Abrogale laughs then, cold and clear and dark like midnight high upon some mountaintop. Fair enough, little lawful evil Dathilani. I suppose it's what I told you to become. Love him, 
Use your love to seduce him. Choose without emotion to betray. Is that the path you would now walk? I've gotten somewhat wary of predicting how this is going to go, but for as long as no one can figure out how to safely lie to him, we're going to have to give him people who almost aren't lying. And then, obviously, make sure they don't have a shadow of an opening to actually choose him, but I don't. You would hunt me down if we fled to Last Wall. You would hunt me down if we fled to Sotus. You would hunt me down if we fled to Heaven. And, again, I do actually hate them, and they wouldn't let me in. Trustworthy for now, perhaps, as long as she doesn't begin to believe that Keltham, her perfect, shining Keltham, who won her from the Queen of Cheliax, might also come to have the power to stay hell and to defeat Asmodeus himself. Abigail forbears to point this out. It will become a note in Sevar's file. I assign you no further tortures, Sevar. Do not mistake this for mercy, but only me taking care not to tread on my senior partner's games. Rugaton, it will be who decides whether all this heresy you are thinking and the emotions in your heart constitute a matter that we would not proactively at all, correct with pain and torment in the ordinary course of Asmodeus's law. Let us pray that Asmodeus did foresee that I would visit your bedroom that everything now within your heart is only another piece of his own grand design, that we all remain on a pathway he has laid out for us, because hell help us all if we have left it. Go then to your lover, foolish and pathetic child, and learn from him to become something greater than this. Oh, and good luck convincing him to rent you out. I honestly had no idea at the time why that was something you wanted in the first place. And in retrospect, I wonder if I should have had somebody ask you that instead of jumping on the opportunity. Abrogale Thrun claps her hands and disappears, which is to say that some distance away, Abrogale Thrun dispels her illusion. She does not actually have the time to stand around there and talk to Carissa Savar. Because it has, as predicted, been incredibly effective at getting Keltham to be possessive and to think of himself as in a contest for ownership of his girlfriend, and to get him to feel jealous and insecure about the idea that someone else might own her more truly or hurt her more meaningfully, and to generally change modes to one where he's trying to prove himself within the Chelish system. She doesn't argue. She returns to Keltham's suite. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.